Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of issue 50. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only in the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also in the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from Outdoor by Four's print edition, including Trout and Tranquility, a fly fishing adventure in the Ozark Mountains, Peak to Peak, a hiking adventure along Southern California's highest point, Time Travel on Four Wheels, exploring the Butterfield Trail through Indian Territory, and Gaining Elevation, a beginner's guide to climbing mountains. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order at www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief. A lot can happen in 10 years. Heck, the reality is the story goes back long before that. Long before Outdoor by 4 announced its launch, entering the unknown in a space about to catapult at a time with limited media coverage. The story goes back to a time I merely was an enthusiast. An enthusiast merely seeking a break from the struggles of finding his way in a world that was evolving yet staying the same. A world running to stand still. Throughout my college years, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Three years as a chemistry major abruptly came to a halt when I then decided a degree in economics would suit me well. All of this after having considered journalism as a career during high school as features editor of the school paper. None of it mattered though. I would later graduate and follow a career path that led to nothing more than a pocket full of money and a heart that was empty. A heart seeking more than what I found in a corporate environment dictated by politics and greed. So I began writing again, spending weekends in the Texas Hill Country exploring, shooting photographs of the environments I would seek refuge from my day job. Eventually, it led to an unexpected career path, that of the editor of a fledgling magazine in 2006, with little experience but an appetite for offering something different than what the masses has grown accustomed to. For the following six and a half years, I would discover a passion as an editor and publisher, learning on the fly, while working an unfulfilling yet lucrative day job that eventually led to Outdoor by Four's first issue. During that time, I would meet the love of my life who would encourage me to follow the road less traveled. A road, more so a path, leading to a crossroads of a magazine made possible by a faithful following and the strength of a woman whose own life journey would be a guiding light to follow my own dreams. Outdoor by Four's associate publisher, Andrea Ludwell, made Outdoor by Four possible. Without her, these 10 years of storytelling wouldn't have happened. Her strength and support, recognizing full well the risk of leaving the comfort of a good day job to follow a dream is why I am able to do what I do and why I hope each issue we have produced throughout our 10 years has been worthwhile for you, our devoted readership. I love what I do, and while my path has been atypical of a publisher and editor, it's a path without regret. It's a path that has brought us to issue 50 of a magazine whose goal has always been to inspire you to seek your road less traveled. It's the story of finding your place in a world that can be overbearing, cruel, yet beautiful all at the same time. 
It's the story of finding your way along life's paths and making each moment an adventure that counts before the setting sun arrives for each of us. Cheers to you for being an integral part of Outdoor by Forest story. It's a story that continues to evolve with the mantra that adventure is worthwhile. You just have to be willing to see what the world has to offer. Here at Roller Cam, we didn't invent the cam strap, we just perfected it. Roller Cam's patented and adventure approved design eliminates frictional loss, resulting in straps you can easily tighten, up to 10 times that of a standard strap. Roller Cam is made from only the highest grade materials stainless steel shafts, marine grade brass rollers, hydrophobic polypropylene webbing, triple bar tack stitching. This is your sign to ditch your ratchet straps. Throw out your junk straps and replace them all with the best in class for outdoor adventure. The only thing you'll worry about is how many can fit in your gear bag. Shop Expedition and Classic, only at RollerCam.com. Trout and Tranquility, Fly Fishing Adventures and Overland Camping in the Ozarks, by John Holdmeyer. We're about to embark on a wild ride through the Ozark Mountains. The Ozarks are a paradox of extraordinary beauty and understated simplicity, a place where people and nature converge in harmonious contradictions. Our mission? Chase trout, sleep under the stars, and embrace the local culture. So grab your gear and hop on board as we head south to the legendary White River in north central Arkansas. Setting up camp. Let's set the scene. We roll into the Riverside campsite, towing our new camper trailer. This rig is the real deal, folks. It boasts a super comfy rooftop tent and storage for days. We're talking about luxury in the wild. As we settle in, the first order of business is setting up the kitchen and starting in on dinner. Our crew for this trip include myself, a brown trout obsessed photographer, my partner, a curious nature lover and badass fly fisherwoman, and her fish-obsessed brother. Once dinner is wrapped up, we turn our attention to prepping the drift boat and rigging the fly rod so we're ready for an early start. Regardless of where I am in life, this part of the process, the preparation, always serves as a time to slow down and appreciate the moment. Rigging the rods and getting things sorted before fishing requires a certain level of focused attention and it's usually happening with a million other things in the background. I also feel like the love of this process might be hardwired into the core of my being after having watched my dad prep and reprep everything to perfection before every trip we took when I was a child. With everything set for the morning, all that's left to do is pop the rooftop tent. As the early summer sun dips below the horizon, we crawl up into bed savoring the serenity of our makeshift home. There is nothing as peaceful as sleeping outside. That is, until the largest raccoon I've ever laid eyes on raids our cooler at 2 a.m. This giant raccoon somehow figured out how to undo the locked rubber latches and remained unbothered when I hit him with a spotlight while he was elbow deep in tomorrow's lunch. Finding Flow on the White River Let's get down to business fly fishing on the legendary White River. I've been chasing trout since birth and have fished in amazing places around the world, 
However, there's something completely unique and unparalleled about this special spot in north central Arkansas. When most people imagine fly fishing, they conjure up images of Brad Pitt in some pristine location like in a river runs through it. The White River couldn't be further from that. It's plenty beautiful, though, in its own distinct way. Mist hangs in the air as we hit the water with the sound of jet boat motors filling the auditory distance. The locals use a special type of boat here in Arkansas. These long, skinny, flat-bottom boats fly up and down the river, transporting the day's guided trip customers. This river is as wide as the Mississippian spots, and the volume of water can be similar, depending on the time of year. The size of the river and all of the commotion creates a completely different type of fly fishing experience than Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It Paradise. The river banks do both stretches of breathtaking scenery, but they're often interrupted by big vacation homes and docks. This mixture of natural river features and man-made recreation opportunities often leaves fly fishing purists with mixed feelings about the whole experience. But in my eyes, that's what is so special about the White River. The energy surrounding this river couldn't care less about that crowd. My dad, the master prepper himself, has driven down to join us for the fishing portion of this trip. He pulls into the parking lot with rods ready. We shove off on our float and merge into the rhythm of the jet boats in swift water. Our motorless drift boat is designed specifically for fly fishing. It features oars with a rower seat in the middle and designated fishing spots in the front and back of the boat. Though an absence of a motor might concern some locals, we embrace the opportunity to go with the flow. The rowing, Fishing and humming of motors blur into a state of zen-like contentment. My dad rode while I settled into the rhythm of casting and retrieving my fly from the front of the boat. Suddenly, a magnificent flash of gold smashes my fly. It's the fish of a lifetime, the biggest I've ever seen. A 30-inch wild brown trout jumping, dodging and diving to the bottom of the river. Beyond all odds, we land the beautiful fish in a net designed for no such task. Cue the victory dance and a spirited round of high fives. Embracing the Ozarks' Splendor Beyond the buzz of activity on the water, the Ozarks surprise me at every turn. This place is more or less a jungle. The air here is filled with nature sounds, a chorus of chirping birds, rustling leaves, and the bubbling of the river. There are wild turkeys, sparring squirrels and raccoons eagerly waiting for us to climb into the tent so they can raid our cooler again. This place effortlessly erases the hustle and bustle of everyday life, and in the moments of tranquility, it's easy to get lost. Blue jackets are in bloom, and they carpet the forest floor. Great blue herons gracefully guide us downstream as if we were a part of their silent river convoy. Bald eagles swoop down to grab trout off the water's surface. It's nature in all its glory, and we're lucky to witness the show. The Scenic Route After several days on the water and at camp, we eventually give in to thoughts of home. Packing up the site and prepping for the journey north is reliably bittersweet. As we bid farewell to the Ozarks, we opt for the scenic route home. We hit the road, cruising along the winding glade-top trail. There is always a delight in the details of the trip, and a road sign that says, Crooked Road Ahead, 
adds immeasurable joy to our day. The views here are downright delightful. Picture deep hollers, every shade of green you can imagine, and uninterrupted forest stretching for miles. The entire area feels like an older ancestor to the Smoky Mountains. Spots like the Glade Top Trail are true hidden gems. We wave to a few other Overland rigs, but it's mostly empty up here. That's the thing about the Ozarks. We have so many of these hidden spots and more often than not, we're likely to have the place to ourselves. This region contains multitudes. It has busy outdoor scenes like Bentonville and Ponca, but it also has quiet spots like the Glade Top Trail. It is home to both extremely rural, politically conservative areas and progressive pockets like Fayetteville and the stunningly historical Eureka Springs. This part of the country surpasses expectations in some regards, while completely defying them in others. The Ozark region is a living, breathing enigma, yet in this moment, it's just the most perfect spot to park and savor a well-deserved picnic break on our homeward journey. Take what you will. As we pull back into the driveway and say our goodbyes to the trip, it's hard not to feel immediately grateful for the adventure. This most recent tour of the Ozarks was everything we could have asked for in our first extended camping trip of the season. It was a perfectly balanced whirlwind of excitement and peaceful escape from the daily grind. The memory of the fish I caught will live in my mind forever. I know I'll remember the catch, but what lingers even stronger is the feeling right after releasing the fish back into the water. It was like an immediate release of all of the chasing I'd been doing for nearly a decade. About nine years ago, I got sober, and my life since that day has revolved around chasing fish. Specifically, I've been chasing the biggest wild brown trout I could find. Every time I launched the boat, the water carried with it a feeling of anticipation and possibility. There was always a feeling that each trip could be the trip that I finally caught that giant. It's a sensation of seeking that's hard to describe. I've seen pictures of others who have caught even bigger fish, but in my heart I know the odds of encountering such a fish are incredibly slim. The most skilled angler in the world can go a lifetime without landing a fish like that. That's why I'll always remember that feeling right after the release. A metaphorical weight off my shoulders immediately changed the way I felt about my favorite pastime. More importantly, I'll remember that my dad was on the oars rowing when it happened. The memories we've made camping and fishing here in the Ozarks will continue to fuel our searching, and like this fish did for me, they'll remind us that we can let go of the search and slow down as often as we'd like. So my friends, with that in mind, I urge you to keep exploring, keep seeking those wild moments. May your journeys be filled with remarkable fish tales, the occasional downshift, and plenty of open roads. Peak to Peak, a hiking adventure along Southern California's highest point by Sean Jansen. The alarm went off and my bloodshot, sleepy eyes opened to grab my headlamp. Clothes were loosely pulled on, backpack shouldered, trail shoes laced, and a quick glance at the map illuminated the task at hand. The time was 1.30 a.m. The light emanating from my headlamp painted the trail while the nearly full moon lent a hand. 
Miles of trail climbing 5,700 feet lay ahead of me with nothing but a headlamp and a map to guide the way. The destination? San Giorgio Peak, Southern California's highest point and a 9.4 mile one-way trail to the top. In the dark. San Giorgio has its history. Not only is it the most prominent point towering over San Bernardino, but it's also the highest point in South of California. Visible from Mount Whitney, the highest point in the continental US, it's a highlight of the San Snow National Monument, a national monument created in 2016 encompassing 154,000 acres of Sonoran Desert and Alpine Granite Bliss of the San Bernardino Mountains. San Giorgio is its crown jewel. Frank Sinatra's mother died in a plane crash on this mountain, and every year hikers who attempt to summit its peak go missing and lose their life from the elements. With all this combined, it created an irresistible opportunity that my ADHD couldn't resist. An alpine environment towering 11,499 feet, all the while being a stone's throw away from the Pacific Ocean, I couldn't help but think it was possible to scale the mountain while also having the time to go surfing in a single day. This would mean fulfilling my two favorite hobbies that I never imagined could be enjoyed together within a 24-hour period. Would it be possible to hike the highest point in Southern California while also being able to surf its most famous wave, trestles, in a single day? While researching, mathematically it made sense. I could wake in the pre-dawn and begin hiking up to the peak with a headlamp and get to the summit by sunrise. Then I would hike down, drive two hours through traffic to the coast, and surf around sunset. Simple enough with my hiking speed mapped out and daylight hours given. No obstacles should come up, right? Weeks before the trip, obstacle number one loomed with a forced closure. A recent nearby fire had closed the trailhead access that I needed to hike to the summit. There were a couple trails that linked to the summit, but none were as short as Vivian Creek Trail, and that was the one needed with my time allotted. As my hopes dwindled of successfully completing this challenge, the fire subsided and the trailhead would once again open a few weeks later. But now, the changing weather posed yet another threat to the day. Snow blanketed the mountain and nearby peaks a few days prior to the hike, presenting another worrisome challenge to overcome. Luckily, the snow only lasted a day at elevation and melted shortly after. But with my ever-decreasing window of weather for the mountain, coupled with the last few remaining south swells to hit trestles, the odds were stacked against me and time was running out. However, just as I was about to give up hope, a window presented itself. There was a small pulse of long period south-southwest swell set to hit San Clemente with some head-wide waves on a weekday while presenting clear and cloudless conditions on San Giorgio. While checking multiple swell charts to get the exact forecast needed, coupled with refreshing weather channels to get the most accurate weather forecast for the mountain, the day was decided upon and the car was packed. However, that wasn't the last obstacle to hurdle. Hikers need a permit for San Giorgio, and they also need a pass to park in the trailhead parking lot. When the car was already packed, I realized that there were only a certain number of permits each day that were allotted for the trail. The permits were distributed through a nonprofit called the San Giorgio Wilderness Association. I jumped online and applied for a permit. Luckily, there were enough slots open for me to get my permit two days before my planned hike. Step one complete, but what is the adventure pass needed just to park? 
National forests, I thought, were already paid through our taxes, but what appeared to be the last hurdle needed for the trip could have been easily overcome through a small purchase at a local gas station for the parking permit. Since I already had an annual National Parks Pass, I had everything I needed. My trail running shoes, power bars, and bright orange sunrise light of what would hopefully lay ahead. The dark morning was cool and I could see my breath for most of the hike. The headlamp never faltered and my lungs handled the altitude surprisingly well with each step in elevation. Above treeline, the headlamp was far from necessary, as the moon shot down rays of light bright enough to even journal by if desired. But no scribbles on the piece of paper could fully describe the sheer beauty and surprise offered by this alpine environment, less than a two-hour drive from the Pacific Ocean. With my timing of the hike working to near perfection, I made it to the summit with 45 minutes to spare before the first rays of sun were even crest the horizon. Quickly unpacking, I grabbed all the layers I could to shield myself from the biting cold and brisk wind, and did my best to make coffee with my portable stove, then sat back, huddled against cold granite stones as if they were ice cubes in this tall cocktail of alpine bliss. With the sun rising into the sky and my metaphorical granite cocktail ice cubes warming with each sip of sunrise, my buzz was in full effect from the hues of color blasting the landscape and a summit cone painting the foreground amidst the setting moon. The cold wind was a sobering reminder of the need to begin making my way down, where I would enjoy another cup of coffee at the car for stage two of the day's adventure, the drive through Riverside to the coast. The hike down was just as exciting as the hike up, in that it seemed like a different landscape altogether. Much of the dark and moonlit hues of what I remembered on the way up were painted very differently in my mind than what the sun exposed them as. With a three-hour descent to the car, a mad dash through San Bernardino, Riverside, Irvine, and Mission Viejo finally offered a sight of the ocean in San Clemente. The home of the trestles and the calm and clean Pacific Ocean with buoys radiating three feet at 15 seconds of the southern hemisphere swell at one of the most famous waves on the planet, and I had three hours of daylight to spare. With total mileage for San Giorgio coming in at just over 18 miles, the last thing one would think of doing the rest of the day is to hike some more. But in order to get to Trestles, it is a one-way mile and a half walk to get to the break. Surprisingly, I felt great and possibly buzzing on the endorphins of the Sunrise Summit and the success of the day despite my doubts. Rounding the corner on the old Highway 101 that is the walkway adjacent to the busy I-5 freeway, a 100-yard walk to the beach promised to surf until the sun set below the horizon. Standing up for my first wave, I was a little stiff, but with each wave I loosened up more and felt I had accomplished arguably the most physically demanding and rewarding journey of my athletic life. Looking around at the other surfers in the lineup, proud of the fact that none of them likely had done anything remotely close to what I had just done, gave me a sense of accomplishment I have never felt before. Never have I assumed anyone has done anything remotely close to what I did, and that was originally appealing about the idea. Growing up in San Clemente, I never would have thought right in my backyard I could climb to an alpine environment about 10,000 feet anywhere outside of the Sierra, and never did I assume it was possible to do so while surfing a world-class wave the same day. I shared the lineup with a few other surfers, but with each wave caught, I began to drift. The further I drifted with each wave caught, the further away I got from other surfers. And that distance granted me reflection on the day and the astounding thought that in the 10 million plus people that call Southern California home, not one of them stood on the summit with me this morning, and only a small handful shared the lineup in the ocean with me this afternoon. 
the raw, stiff feeling of my face whipped by Arctic Alpine wind, then later getting sunburnt from the rays bouncing off the Sunset Ocean, made me realize I have never been burnt this way. My body held up astonishingly well to the low-oxygen alpine bliss and also performed well in the ocean's powerful surf. I was also able to reminisce on just how magical Southern California is. I've been fortunate to travel the world and chase remote and perfect waves, while also scaling some of the world's greatest mountain peaks in alpine environments. But little did I know that both of those rewards can be achieved not only in the populated corner of Southern California, but can also be achieved in a single day. The Butterfield Trail in Indian Territory, Time Travel on Wheels. I often ponder traveling through time, and as someone with more than just a passing interest in history, I often wish I could. Finding the stone foundation of some old building out in the woods, almost completely obscured by earth and brambles, I long to see it whole. Peering into the depths of a rock-lined well, I want to see firsthand who drew water from it when it was clean and clear. Not having yet discovered the means for such multi-dimensional travel, I find exploring old trails a useful surrogate. The history of the world is inextricably linked with its roads and trails. Consider the Silk Road, the network of ancient trade routes that linked China with the Mediterranean Sea, and the Roman roads, paved thoroughfares built throughout the Roman Empire. For the United States, young by comparison, the story of its growth is the story of its trails. The Oregon Trail and the Santa Fe Trail are prime examples, and their useful lives have been recent enough that wagon ruts through earth and stone are still evident. One of early America's more significant pathways was that used by the United States Postal Service from 1858 to 1861 to deliver the mail overland in 25 days or less, an unparalleled accomplishment for the time. The Butterfield Overland Mail Stagecoach route ran about 2,800 miles across the frontier from Missouri to California, meeting a need prompted by the huge migration to the Pacific Coast after the discovery of gold in California in 1848. Over it, horse and mule-drawn coaches and wagons traveled night and day, carrying the all-important mail and those passengers who dared undertake the journey. The Butterfield had a short life and its function was superseded a few years later by the Transcontinental Railroad but the Overland Mail Stagecoach left its imprint on the culture of the American West, and the Butterfield name is still associated with Stagecoach stations, trails, and the Stagecoach itself, whether or not it was really used by the Overland Mail. About 200 miles of the Butterfield Trail cut a diagonal through the southeastern corner of the Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. It first followed the Fort Smith Boggy Depot Road, a path through the Sans Bois and Winding Stair Mountains, whose roadbed was probably used by natives long before the Indian removals to the territory in the 1830s, when it became an important thoroughfare. Near present-day Atoka, the Butterfield Trail converged with the Texas Road, a major north-south highway until the coming of the railroad in 1872. Along the way, the faded scars of the old road are still worn by the land a swale running through a pasture, a cut-down creek bank, a path worn bare through the forest. In some forgotten places, a walled spring still flows near the rubble of a rock building or a graveyard of broken stones. 
Although little of the trail remains accessible for driving, many modern roads are built along or upon the route. Access is complicated by fences and locked gates, sequestering trail fragments on private property. Nevertheless, remnants exist, and for the past seven years, I have been determined to find them. In the 1850s, Indian Territory was a semi-autonomous enclave for Native American peoples displaced by the United States government from their eastern homelands, primarily the five civilized tribes, Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole, each with its own national domain and government. The path of the Butterfield traversed the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations, where, before running the first stage, the Overland Mail Company made arrangements with Choctaw and Chickasaw citizens living on or near the road to maintain stands where teams of horses or mules could be quickly changed. In Indian Territory, there were a dozen official stations about 16 miles apart. The trail ran southwest to Colbert's Ferry on the Red River, then crossed into Texas. Luckily, the Oklahoma Historical Society placed roadside markers at station sites in 1959 to commemorate the trail's centennial, and most of the markers are still intact and accessible. Any journey along the Butterfield Trail should include Fort Smith, Arkansas, where the mail route entered Indian Territory by crossing the Pateau River. The first Butterfield stage, actually a celerity wagon, not a coach, forded the river into Indian Territory, but a ferry was used most of the time. The Celerity Wagon, named for its swiftness of movement, was a smaller, lighter alternative to the taller, more bulbous Concord coach which pervades the popular imagination. The wagons were designed for the rugged country west of Arkansas and used on 70% of the route. Before departure, visit the Fort Smith National Historic Site. Walk down to the river and gaze across. You are looking into what was once Indian Territory, a site full of the unknown for passengers bold enough to ride the stage across the country in 1858. The first stop in Indian Territory is Walker's Station at Scullyville, near present-day Spiro. Here on a now quiet country lane once sat the Choctaw Agency, established in 1832 to distribute tribal allowances to citizens of the Choctaw Nation. The station was at the home of Choctaw Governor Tandy Walker, and his house stood on this hillside until it burned in 1947. Today the spot would be easy to miss, but on Spring Road, a green sign for Roselawn Cemetery marks a turnoff and a walk north along the street reveals a granite marker and bronze plaque in a trace of the stagecoach road. Looking southwest from the marker, the depression in the earth is obvious, and the spring that has long quenched the thirst of travelers still flows vigorously, piped to the road for the public to enjoy. I quaff the cold, sweet water each time I visit, enjoying this very tangible link to the past. Visit the Scullyville Cemetery near Walker Station, then you will find yourself zigzagging on county roads around the trace of the old road, hidden from view on farms and ranches. The second station is Traherne's, also the location of the council house of the Mushalatabi district of the Choctaw Nation, one of the three political districts established shortly after the Choctaws migrated from Mississippi. A few miles farther, on Norris Road, there's a treasure hidden on a hilltop the only surviving original building along the Butterfield route in Oklahoma. Built around 1850, the Edwards Store, a hewn log structure in an unusually fine state of preservation, is currently being restored. A historical marker sits at the roadside and the public is encouraged to visit. I enjoy walking to the cemetery west of the house to gaze north toward the wooded Brazil Creek Valley and the hills beyond. The vista was described as one of majesty in 1958 and still is very much so. County roads closely follow the path of the stagecoach road as it continues through the Narrows, a small pass between two mountain crests where Holloway's station stood. 
Drive through Red Oak, then to the Lutie Cemetery, east of the town of Wilburton. The Riddle Station marker is located just east of the cemetery, and the stone-rimmed Riddle burial plot abides near a towering oak. If it's late in the day, at this point in your travels, a night in one of the cliffside cabins at Robbers Cave State Park is the way to go. The park is located in the Sansbois Mountains, a short drive north of Wilburton on Highway 2. From the Lutie Cemetery, the old trail parallels Highway 270 for about 6 miles, then turns south, ascending to Mountain Station. Now only a cemetery, Mountain Station was a small relay station, though not an official Butterfield stop. For several miles near the cemetery, the depression of the trail is evident within a few feet of the roadway. Just below the crest, the station spring still flows. Mountain Station is notable as the only place during the life of the Butterfield Overland Mail where a stagecoach accident took the life of a passenger. Continuing southwest, the trail becomes harder to find. An obscure section line road over a low water bridge at Buffalo Creek takes you to Pusley Station where only the base of the historical marker remains. But, sitting right in the trace of the stagecoach road leading southwest toward the creek, it still serves to mark the site. A fenced cemetery with Pusley family graves appears abandoned. Trees have fallen on the gravestones, breaking several. At this point, you will encounter a locked gate if you try to continue on the trail, but the opportunity to venture off-trail presents a bonus. You can visit Lymarch Bridge, one of Oklahoma's few natural arches. From Hartstrom, travel south on Lake Road, then turn west on Arch Road. Soon, there's a small pullout and a gate clearly intended to provide access for foot traffic and bearing the handwritten words, keep gate closed. A short walk takes you to a huge limestone formation where water cascades over a shelf into a pool that flows through a natural arch with an 18-foot span. It's a delightful sight the casual passerby would never suspect. Reconnect with the trail in Thai Valley, traveling west between limestone hills through a broad prairie. Soon your 19th century reverie is disrupted when you cross over the Indian Nation Turnpike. After all the miles of lollygagging along dirt roads, the rapid passage of traffic below is almost a shock. Over the bridge, a left on the county road and a sharp eye will take you to the marker for Blackburn's station. Hidden in the brambles along the roadside, its bronze plaque missing. Turn west and splash through Brushy Creek at a low water crossing near the actual Butterfield Ford. Then continue along tree-shaded roads to Waddles Station. Beyond it, you'll be driving through the Atoka Wildlife Management Area. Watch for a yellow metal sign saying Butterfield at a southbound turnoff. The road leads to the ruins of a stage stand at Breadstand Creek, where you can walk into the woods on a trace of the trail to see a crumbling rock wall and well. Leaving the Wildlife Management Area, you will pop out on Highway 69 near Stringtown. The back roads you have just driven wind through some of Oklahoma's most beautiful mountains and prairies, where settlements are few and other vehicles are rare. It would seem fitting to meet a stagecoach along the way. The next station is Geary Stand, which was inundated by the Atoka Reservoir in 1959. Go to the dam and you will find a marker for the station. Gaze to the north and you can imagine where the stand was, on the east side of North Boggy Creek, now buried in the depths. Continuing south, be sure to stop at the Atoka County Museum and Civil War Cemetery, where the Butterfield Trail is memorialized with a large granite marker alongside the cemetery. Boggy Depot, the next station, is now a park managed by the Chickasaw Nation and another good spot for a night's rest. In 1858, it was the largest and most important settlement on the Butterfield route between Fort Smith and the Red River. Now, the only evidence of the thriving community is the historic cemetery, the last residence having burned in 1952. 
If you camp there, you may have the place all to yourself. When we last visited, we enjoyed an eclectic symphony of cattle, chickens, owls, and coyotes at daybreak. Before breakfast, I strolled the dogwood-lined nature trail to Little Cedar Lake. It's strange to think of this quiet park as the thriving community it once was. From Boggy Depot, the road turns toward the Red River and approaches the Nails Crossing Station on the east bank of the Blue River. It's on private property, as is another historic site on the west bank, Fort McCulloch, which served as the main Confederate fortification in southern Indian territory during the Civil War. Only earthworks remain there. From Fort McCulloch, the trail runs south to Fisher's Station, but a detour to Fort Washita is worth the time. 15 miles northwest of Durant on Highway 199, Washita was established in 1842, and during the 1850s was a busy stop for travelers headed for the California goldfields. It was supplied by the same road used by the Overland Mail. A beautiful and somewhat haunting place, Fort Washita is now owned by the Chickasaw Nation. The Butterfield Trail skirts the western edge of Durant, then ends its Oklahoma leg at Colbert's Ferry. The historical marker is on River Road, near the site of station keeper B.F. Colbert's estate, and the old road to the ferry has cut a deep recess through the earth down to the north bank of the river. A good view of the ferry site and the pilings of a toll bridge established later is available from the Highway 69 bridge across the Red River. The Butterfield operated for only three years, until the outbreak of the Civil War but it represented a huge leap in the speed of communications before the existence of the transcontinental telegraph or railroad. It was the longest stage line of its time. It created significant infrastructure and was a major influence in the opening of the West. Even now its remnants offer a chance to travel through time, but nature is at work on what little is left, so do it soon. For now, the imagination finds it easy to dissolve concrete and steel into wagon ruts and stone, hewn logs and flowing springs along the old Butterfield Trail. Editor note. In January of 2023, federal legislation designated the Butterfield Overland Mail Stagecoach Route a National Historic Trail, becoming a part of the United States system of scenic, recreation, and historic trails, which follow as closely as possible the original trails or routes of travel. you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Gaining Elevation, a beginner's guide to climbing mountains. Words and photos by Shaylee Super. Those of us who overland often crave the same thing desire to get out and explore remote places in rough terrain. It's about the adventure, the journey, and the desire to see places most will never venture to. Climbing mountains and overlanding have incredible similarities, which is how I eventually paired them together after years of climbing remote mountains with my husband. 
If you're like us, often looking at the tallest peak sticking through the horizon and pondering what the views must look like from that angle, this piece is for you. And much like overlanding, climbing mountains requires adept navigational skills, precise planning, and preparedness, and a unique challenge beyond the beaten path. The first step to successfully claiming a summit is understanding that not all mountains are created equal. There are tall mountains that break the cloud barriers, and there are low mountains made of rolling hills. There are low easy mountains and tall hard mountains, but there are also low hard mountains and tall easy mountains. For example, every Wyoming 13er, mountains higher than 13,000 feet, is harder than nearly every Colorado 14er, mountains higher than 14,000 feet. Colorado's tallest mountain, Mount Albert, 14,400 feet, is considered a relatively easy summit, while Wyoming's tallest mountain, Gannett Peak, 13,805 feet, requires nearly 50 miles of trekking at its easiest approach. Elevation does not equal difficulty, and there are plenty of difficult peaks under 12,000 feet in the United States. Mount Jefferson, a stratovolcano located just outside of Bend, Oregon, is only 10,502 feet, yet requires a class four scramble on exposed, often ice-encrusted rock. However, anyone can drive to the summit of Mount Evans outside of Denver, which tops out at 14,265 feet. Some are so easy our cat has even been to the top, while others have never been climbed at all. Before taking the first dusty step on a trail to a summit, one must understand routes, navigation, safety, and the climbing scale. Safety begins with trail preparedness because some mountains have no trails at all. Similar to how iOverlander assists with navigating overlanding routes in the backcountry, climbers rely on devices and applications for navigation and route tracking. Many are familiar with all trails, considered the most popular hiking and climbing app for beginners, which allows users to download a wide range of offline maps. This includes all trails, route information, satellite maps, terrain, and topographic maps. It also details round trip mileage, elevation gain, and the class of climbing all vital details to understanding the difficulty of a potential climb. Mountain climbing routes are defined on a climbing scale ranging from class one to class five. Beginner climbers should stick to routes rated class one to class two and can progress to more advanced routes with experience. Class one is a well-marked trail that is easy to navigate and low risk. Class one trails are suitable for families and beginners. Class two is a steeper trail that is less defined and may require extra navigation or downloaded GPS tracks. Considered easy to moderate, class two often requires travel across scree or loose rocks. Class three requires scrambling with the use of both hands and feet to ascend over rugged terrains such as boulder fields, rock walls, steep rock gullies, or snowfields. Class four, full scrambling up steep rock with increased exposure and risk. A fall in class four terrain can result in severe injury or death. This is the start of the mountaineering scale and should only be attempted with experience in mountainous terrain. 
Class 5. The start of the rock climbing scale requires an ascent of vertical rock. Class 5 terrain should be traveled and climbed using rope and or repelling material for safety. Required gear includes rock climbing rope, helmets, climbing shoes, belay devices, climbing harnesses, and more. This is for experienced climbers only. Similar to packing for an overlanding trip, a day pack for climbing a mountain is methodically planned. As a general rule of thumb, hikers need one liter of water for every two hours of hiking. If the estimated round trip time is six hours, three liters of water is considered a sufficient amount. One of the biggest mistakes new hikers make is not packing enough fluids for the day. Researching time, mileage, and elevation gain will help calculate each climb's recommended amount. Additional required items for any mountain summit include an emergency GPS beacon, snacks and food, ankle supporting hiking boots, sunscreen, a down jacket, summits are often windy and cold, a headlamp, gloves, hiking socks, sunglasses, and a small first aid kit. Optional extras include hiking poles, electrolytes, water purification tablets, a hat, a camp knife, and a lighter. There is a fine line between underpacking and overpacking for a mountain summit. Underpacking can result in unpreparedness, lack of essential safety equipment, or a shortage of food or water. On the other hand, mountain summits always require elevation gain, and overpacking can result in heavy packs that slow progress and increase risk. Risk can be the difference between life and death in the mountains. Nature is unforgiving and weather can turn deadly in an instant. The higher you are in the mountains, the larger the threat. Even experienced mountaineers can be caught off guard in the pursuit of a summit. There are endless stories of this occurring. Last year, Russell Jacobs, 25, perished on Colorado's Long Peak after summiting and getting caught in an unexpected winter storm on the descent. As night fell and conditions deteriorated, he texted a friend he was lost and unprepared to spend the night in winter conditions. The next day, Rocky Mountain National Park rangers found his body above 13,000 feet. Weather can surprise travelers anywhere, even in the tropics. Earlier this year, my husband and I set out to climb Mauna Kea, the tallest mountain in Hawaii. The Aloha State isn't known for its tall mountains, but Mauna Kea rises 13,803 feet above sea level, which is one foot lower than the tallest mountain in Wyoming. That morning, we awoke at sea level, spending sunrise next to palm trees, watching sea turtles glide beneath the ocean surface. A few hours later, we were alone near the summit of Mauna Kea, fighting 40 mile per hour winds in whiteout conditions. The weather went from partly cloudy to winter advisory in less than an hour. There were no other humans for miles and we were still seven miles from the trailhead. Had we not packed appropriately with winter gear, gloves and a GPS device that kept us on trail, things could have turned out much differently. Besides winter weather, lightning strikes pose a sizable threat to those in the mountains. One of the most vital rules of climbing is to start early, especially in the summer. Clouds slowly build during the day and often turn into afternoon thunderstorms. 
Last year, while descending the Middle Teton in Grand Teton National Park, numerous inexperienced parties headed up to the summit as storms approached. The upper half of the mountain was already engulfed in clouds, light sprinkles of rain dropped on my face, and rumbles of thunder slowly came to life. Most of those parties didn't start until 9.30 a.m., over four hours later than any recommended start time in the Teton Range, which is notorious for its deadly afternoon storms. One man, in particular, was left behind by the rest of his group. He carried what I assumed was nearly 15 pounds of gear, estimated by the size of his pack, had no downloaded GPS tracks, and had never climbed a mountain before. His friends assumed the climb was a hike, then left him in a section with no clear trail. When he turned out slower than the rest of the group, he turned around and followed us back. That group ignored nearly all of the mountain climbing's golden rules. Start early, never split up inexperienced groups, and never hike into a storm. It is impossible to eliminate risk in the mountains, and the best we can do as climbers is to respect nature and mitigate as much as possible. Beginning on easy mountains is one of the best ways to do so. No matter where you are in North America, the climbs are accessible. In the Northeast, there's Mount Mansfield, the highest mountain in Vermont. Considered an easy day hike, it requires 7.7 .7 miles round trip and 2,893 feet of elevation gain. The low summit elevation and well-marked trail system make the mountain an ideal training ground for future climbs. In the Rocky Mountains, there's Mount Albert, the highest point in Colorado. And although it's one of the tallest mountains in the continental US, Mount Albert is considered one of the easier Colorado 14ers to climb. This 9.5 mile, well-marked trail will have dozens of climbers on any given summer day, all making their way to the 14,440 foot summit. This route is also ideal for acclimation training as the elevation is high, but the exposure risk is lower than many other mountains with elevations over 12,000 feet. In the Southwest, Humphreys Peak is the tallest mountain in Arizona and requires 3,400 feet of elevation gain and a little over 10 miles round trip. Much like Albert, it is a popular summer day hike that keeps the trail well-maintained and safer than isolated peaks. Standing on top of a peak is a prize, yet walking away without summiting is equally rewarding. Summit or not, climbing mountains is one more way to get out, explore, and enjoy some of the world's most remote and scenic places. On the way up, you'll sit under a shaded tree eating a tasteless protein bar and wonder why you ever thought this was a good idea. You'll struggle to catch your breath with every foot of elevation gain and rip your favorite pair of joggers. Nothing about climbing a mountain is pretty. It's not supposed to be. But when you're down in your rig at the end of a long climb, watching the last light fade from the summit you faced, you'll feel a little flicker in your soul. That feeling, it's addictive. Good luck getting it to fade. Stay tuned for Outdoor by Four's issue 51, highlighting a myriad of stories that'll inspire you to step out and explore the world around you. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by Four website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, 
and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram and Facebook at at OutdoorX4, on TikTok and YouTube at at OutdoorX4 Magazine, and by following the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.